Well, we're coming down the home stretch in our series on 1 Peter. Um, I think we have probably two or three more left. Um, You might wonder why I sound a little bit ambiguous there. I'm not even going to tell you why I sound ambiguous at this point, but I am. Um, So we're nearing the end, suffice it to say. Many of you recognize the name of Stephen Hawking. We mentioned him once in a while in some of our message. He was a world-renowned theoretical physicist. He died in 2018. He was completely paralyzed from ALS. And he was, by the way, one of the best-known agnostics in the world. Near his 70th birthday, he was asked if there was anything in the world that really puzzled him. And he replied that there was one thing in the universe that he cannot seem to grasp. Women. He states that women are what he thinks about most of the time during the day. But they are, in his words, a complete mystery. And it reminds me of the old joke about the man who found a a lamp with a genie and was offered a wish. And he asked the genie, to make a highway for him that would run from California to Hawaii because he always wanted to go to Hawaii, but he was afraid of flying. And Jeannie said, well, that's, that's just too hard of a request. You have to ask for something easier. So the man thought and said, I wish I understood women. To which the, which the genie replied, okay, two lanes or four. I knew I had to give you a, a, a 10 seconds to, to get that. <laughs> Suppose you did find a golden lamp, and as you began to polish it, a genie popped out and offered you three wishes. I wonder what your three wishes would be. Maybe some, somebody would say, well, I wish I had a million dollars. Somebody else would say, well, I wish I could find somebody to marry. Someone else would want to be famous. Someone else would want to be young again. I wonder how many of us would sincerely think to ask for humility or to ask for wisdom. These are not qualities that are in very much demand at all. And yet they are very close to the heart of God. King Solomon was a rare breed who did ask for wisdom And because he did, God not only made him the wisest man ever, but also gave him incredible wealth besides. The Bible says that Moses was a humble man, a very humble man, and it says that he was more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Today is our text from um, 1 Peter, our text for today from 1 Peter has to do with humility, as you might guess. And I invite you to turn there now or watch on the screen. It actually is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 7. Starting at verse 5 of chapter 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. 
Though we're not going to dwell on it this morning, notice that that topic of submission rises once again in 1 Peter. You who are younger, be subject to the elders. We preached on that. We're not going to go there this morning, but I just want to call your attention to the fact that once again, there is that idea of, of submission, which is a godly principle. Verse 5 of the text says, Clothe yourself with humility towards one another. Now what humility is not, humility is not having a doormat mentality. It's not the attitude of, well, I'm nothing, I'm just dirt, I deserve to be walked on. We had for years a lady in our church who's now with the Lord, and whenever the subject of humility um, came up, it was like a hot button issue, and she'd have to quick jump in and say, but you're not supposed to be a doormat. Well, of course you're not supposed to be a doormat. That's not what humility is. But she was so concerned that, that I would portray humility as we're supposed to just be walked over by everybody all the time. Humility is not a false show. It's not pretending to be humble, but just waiting to be recognized. It's not rejoicing when someone else is celebrating, while all the while inwardly we're seething with envy. It's not feigning contentment while inwardly coveting someone else's position. It's not looking at someone else's talents and abilities and being jealous. Humility is serving those who are hard to serve. It might mean serving someone who has hurt you deeply. It might mean serving someone whose lifestyle you don't approve of. It might mean loving someone who is unlovable. It might be deferring to someone who you are racially prejudiced against. It might be you, as part of management, serving someone who is an underling in your corporate structure. Or it might be you, as an underling, going above and beyond to serve the company. In our church, humility is being willing to go Last in line when we have a dinner, instead of rushing up to the front to get the best choice. It's coming to church early and leaving late because you're helping in some way. You're doing security or, or helping with the IT or you have something or being with one of the worship team. Humility is cleaning up a mess that no one else wants to clean up in the church. It's seeing something that needs to be done and doing it instead of wondering why someone else doesn't take care of that problem. And for the children who are listening today, humility is climbing in the back seat so your sister can sit in front. It's choosing the smallest piece and leaving the larger piece for your sibling. It's sharing toys. My goodness, I'm thinking about the grandkids now. In our families, humility is being the first to ask for forgiveness. It's honoring one another above ourselves. It's overlooking an insult, overlooking an offense. It's looking at the log in your own eye before you try to deal with the speck that's in another family member's eye. In our families, humility is, as my dear friend Pastor Harry Stackhouse says, it's being righteous instead of having to be right. I'm going to repeat that. It's being righteous instead of having to be right. Now, I'm one that likes to be right. 
I'm one that usually thinks I am right within the context of the family, and I can give you 10 reasons why I'm right. Um, but I often think about what Pastor Harry says. It's more important to be righteous than to be right. Humility is something that is always done in relation to another. Humility cannot be exercised in a vacuum. It's considering others better than ourselves. In other words, allowing ourselves to decrease in order to see another increase. The text says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. We can, of course, also be humble towards God. I think it's interesting that humility really is not talked about that much. People want all kinds of things, but it's rare you meet somebody that really wants humility. They want pride, they want position, they want possessions, they want to be recognized, they want to to, um, have their forgiveness sought, uh, or or want people to ask forgiveness of them. Um, Humility just isn't in the front place of most people. And yet, in God's mind, humility is right in first place. That's why he pointed out people like Moses. Moses is the most humble person on the face of the earth. Imagine that. What a statement to be made about somebody. And I, I always read that and I wonder, I wonder where I fall. Where do I fall in the number? Am I close to being humble or far away from being humble? But obviously, in God's economy, it's very important. Verse 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. There are many men and women in the scripture, who humble themselves before God. Um, one is the man Ahab. Ahab was really quite a piece of work, um, um, married to Jezebel. I'm reading from 1 Kings chapter 21. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up, and I will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, when the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Verse 27 says, And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. Hezekiah humbled himself before God and was given 15 more years to live, even though he wasted that opportunity. David, when he had to be disciplined for counting the fighting men because it would be demonstrating that he's putting his, his security in man instead of the Lord who gives victory, humbled himself before, before God. And David said to 
Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hands of man. David was always quick to humble himself before God. And as you all know, he, he really made some major mistakes, major blunders. But he knew how to run and not hide and seek mercy from God. And God desires that kind of response from us. And don't forget the emphasis of this whole book of 1 Peter is victory in the midst of suffering. Humility is humbling ourselves in the face of adversity. To use biblical language, it's enduring hardship as discipline. I think it's really hard for us, it's hard for me to, to humble myself before adversity. I want the adversity to be done with and over with and get back to something that's more comfortable. And you know, I know what the word of the Lord is saying. It's saying, humble yourself before adversity. It's one of the messages of 1 Peter. The message of 1 Peter is not raise your fist and shake your fist at the people that are causing the adversity and the people who are tormenting you and the people who are persecuting you. No, it's saying humble yourself before the adversity. Put your trust in me and I will raise you up in the proper time. That's the message of this text. It's the message of the whole book of 1 Peter. We receive very little character development through blessing. Most of our character development happens through trials. When we submit to them and we humble ourselves before them, that's when God has a way of, of really refining us, of really developing our character. Blessings often, if not most of the time, do the opposite. Blessings usually make us prideful because we take credit for them. Well, I'm blessed because of who I am, because of what I've done, because of how hard I've worked. That's why I have these blessings. And blessings also make us discontented, always wanting more. That's why, um, you know, Beth and I, after our two, two of our kids went to the Dominican Republic for their honeymoons, I saw the pictures and I told Beth, I said, we got to go there. And so we did. But, you know, going to the Dominican Republic once didn't make me say, well, that was really great. I'm glad I got to do that once in my life. No, it made me want to go back, which we did. And the second trip made me want to, what do you think, Monica? Go back, which we did. And Lord willing, next January, we'll try to go back again. Um, just pointing out that blessings don't tend to make us content. They make us want to have more. Um, if I go to a really nice restaurant, and I've been to some really nice restaurants, I don't go away thinking, well, you know, next time McDonald's will be fine again. The next time that little family restaurant will do the shit. No, it's like, whoa, now this is a nice restaurant. And so I want every restaurant experience to be like that one. Just to point out again, I don't think I'm different here. Blessings tend to make us want more, um, not be content with, with less when we humble ourselves under suffering, we see all too quickly the weaknesses in our character. We see the flaws. We see all the things that are not what they should be yet. All the places where, where God isn't through with us yet. and We need improvement. And we find ourselves reaching out to God, seeking God, saying, Lord, I need your help. Lord, there's so much in me that isn't righteous yet. 
I'm so far away from where I need to be. And, and that's what happens when we submit ourselves to trials. It causes us to reach out to God. We find ourselves wanting to be done with the things of the world and to have him above all else. In times of blessing, it seems like it's easy to reach out for more of the things of the world and fleshly things and worldly things. But when suffering comes our way and we submit to it, it has a way, we mentioned this a few weeks ago in that text, has a way of making us really want to be done with the sins of the flesh, with the things that just don't belong in our life and yet are such, have been such a struggle for us. Martin Luther, and again I'm referring to Martin Luther the the great reformer, the Protestant reformer, said, Oh, his grace and goodness towards us is so immeasurably great that without great assaults and trials, it cannot be understood. And if you know anything about the history of Martin Luther, you know um, the persecution he was under. He had to run for his life and hide for his life for a long time, and he was hated by a whole lot of people. And yet he lived to say, that it's only with great assaults and trials that we can begin to understand the immeasurably great goodness of God. And maybe some of you relate with that because of trials that you have been through. Larry Crabb is a, a Christian psychologist. Um, he's still around and he's still doing his work, though you don't hear his name much anymore. But he wrote this in a book that he, he wrote called Shattered Dreams. Remember the flesh's argument. God made us to feel happy. We don't feel happy. Therefore, nothing matters more to us than finding some way to feel happy. So some people go shopping at that point. He goes on, blessings can actually strengthen that argument. When things go well, we may think that happiness is our birthright. How often I have said when prayers are answered, of course, my life should run smoothly. I may not have heard myself, but I said that, nevertheless. He goes on, only trials have the power to break that argument. Only pain, and this is where it really gets good. I'm going to read it twice. Only pain exposes our commitment to happiness for what it is, an arrogance that displaces God from his rightful place. Now, I know that's good. I'm going to read it again. If you don't remember anything else from today, remember that. Only pain exposes our commitment to happiness for what it is, an arrogance that displaces God from his rightful place. God has good promises for the humble. Verse 5 says, he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that's a pretty good reason, isn't it, to be humble before God? Because we sure don't want God to oppose us. We want God on our side. We want to be on God's side. We don't want to be one that God stands opposed to. But he will oppose the proud. But he will give grace to the humble. God had to oppose Balaam because of his pride. Before Saul became Paul, God had to oppose him, even striking him with blindness on the road to Damascus. Have you ever had a fight with God? Ever had a real fight with God? Who won? <laughs> that alone has to be a good reason to be humble before God. If we're full of pride, we're on our own. If we're humble, God says he will draw near and he will help. 
The Bible doesn't say, God helps those who help themselves. Some people think that's in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. It's not a quote from the Bible. Rather, God helps those who humble themselves before him. Do we really want to face our problems alone? Wouldn't we rather have his help? Wouldn't we rather have his mighty hand helping us? A real big part of humility is submitting our will to God. And a big part of our will is, you ready for this? Our timetable. Our timing of when things have to happen. God has his own timetable. And he says in verse 7 of our text that he may lift you up in due time. So there's an assurance there that, yes, he will lift us up. But there's also an assurance that it's not going to be with your timetable. It's not going to be with your schedule. It's not going to be when you think it should happen. It'll be in due time. And that could probably be better translated as at the proper time, he will lift you up. We want everything now. We know we live in an instant culture. I don't need to assure you that. My very first modem, when the internet first became a thing, um, was 14.4 kilobytes per second. And actually, it used dial-up. That was before the you know, other form. For Christmas one year, we went to California to visit Beth's family, and Beth's brother um, gave me a new modem for Christmas, and it was 28.8 kilobytes per second. Well, I was like, I mean, I was like uh, a little kid with a new toy. I mean, nothing else mattered. None of the other gifts mattered. I had a fast modem, and I couldn't wait to fly back to, to Illinois to put it into the computer. And yet, by today's standards, a 28.8 dial-up modem is like a turtle. You know, it doesn't do anything. But we were impressed. I was impressed. I mean, I was flying on the internet. The first smartphones were amazing. They came, and then they increased. And you get the 4G, and you get the 5G, and you get all these improvements, all to make it faster, download faster, and Google things faster. Who doesn't want something faster than what you have right now? Many young couples start out wanting to own everything that it took their parents 20 years or more to achieve. And you see it truthfully, in, in most young families. We think we should have everything now. Sometimes we think it's our right to have everything now. We think that our suffering should end right now. But God says, humble yourself under his mighty hand, and he will lift you up in the proper time. The proper time doesn't mean right now. That's why patience is called in the scripture one of the fruits of of the Spirit. Isn't part of humbling ourselves before God, allowing Him to decide the timetable instead of us demanding what we want and when we want it. People who cannot wait for the Lord are impetuous. You saw it for sure in the life of, of King Saul, who lost the kingdom because he couldn't wait for the Lord. He tried, but then he reached his limit, and he couldn't wait any longer, and he lost the kingdom over it. People that you and I know, maybe ourselves, are impetuous, and that we make really dumb mistakes when we can't wait for the Lord. When we're impetuous, we take shortcuts. 
We cut corners. We ignore good, sensible, biblical wisdom because we have to have something now. People who are impetuous are like unstable dynamite. Who wants unstable dynamite in their life? Scripture says, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. His grace and power will be poured out upon those who are humble enough to wait for the Lord's timetable. And this is what verse 6 means when it says, Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. When Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, but not my, my will, your will. And what was Jesus doing in the garden? He was humbling himself under the mighty hand of God. He was doing exactly what Peter is telling us to do. And indeed, God did lift him up later with the resurrection, the ascension, and ultimately seating him at the right hand of the Father forevermore. Jesus was rewarded for humbling himself under the mighty hand of God, humbling himself under adversity. And so shall we, if we will do the same. We near the end of the book of 1 Peter, just probably like two more messages to go. And it's a book that's all about suffering. And maybe you can't remember everything that we've said over these number of weeks. However, you can remember, or maybe you can remember, that little verse at the end that's in verse 7 that we haven't mentioned yet. Casting all your anxieties on him, for he careth for you. And I slipped back into the King James there. It says, for he cares for you in the ESV. I suppose we could almost say that that little verse almost summarizes the book of 1 Peter. Casting all of your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Who doesn't have anxieties? I was listening to Chris Fabry on Moody, and I don't know if this was past week or the week before. Sometimes it runs all together in my mind. But he asked in that certain program for people that were listening to post on his Facebook page right then what they were anxious about. And then he read off probably 10 or 20 different things that people had spontaneously in the moment posted. One person posted simply, my adult son. Another said, COVID is in my family. Someone else said, our nation. Someone else said, my job is in danger and I'm too old to find another one. Someone else mentioned their health. And one of Chris's points that day was that we live in a time, and nobody here would argue with this, when anxieties are high. They're running sky high. And there seems to be a whole lot for any and all of us to be anxious about, to be worried about, to be concerned about. It almost seems like every week there is yet something new that can cause us to be weighed down with anxiety and concern and worried about the future and wondering what if and, and how will we now live and how will we raise our families, etc. And unless we are a very small child, 
who is here doesn't feel the pressure of anxieties? But God's answer to anxiety, answer to anxiety, God's answer to anxiety is right here in verse 7. It is casting our cares upon him. I always like to think of it literally um, as though the anxieties are weighed upon me. They're on my shoulders and I'm kind of lifting them up, peeling them off and consciously throwing them at God or handing them over to God. And I frequently picture that when I'm praying, when I'm struggling with anxiety, kind of, kind of give me a physical picture of I'm, I'm lifting up all this stuff that's weighing me down and I'm trying to hand it over to him because he says, cast all your anxieties upon me. God never says that concerns are not real. He never says that we can always expect to live in easy times and, and if you serve me, your life's going to be easy and comfortable and good and fun. He never says that. He does say that we have the privilege of casting our cares upon him. He doesn't mean for us to carry them. In fact, any of us will collapse if we carry anxieties. And every day we just add new ones, the ones we always have. You're not made to handle that. I'm not made to handle that. And you might, you might be great for a while, but it will take a toll on you. Take a toll on your health, your psychological health. It will take a toll because we're not made to carry worries and anxieties. We're made to cast them off to the Lord and let him carry them. He knows that they're real. He doesn't put the, discount them. He doesn't downplay them. And he offers to carry them for us. And he assures us, assures us that he cares for us. And we will never in this world find anybody who loves us and cares for us more than Jesus. Even though we might search and find and think, well, there's some flesh and blood person that will do that for me, you'll never find anybody that cares for you the way God does. And you can take that to the bank. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, this book is so wonderful. Maybe it's why I've always loved the book of First Peter. And I've run across so many other believers. Like my daughter says she loves the book of First Peter. And I like it, I guess, because it speaks so real about the nature of suffering and the reality of suffering and the reality of persecution. And it also speaks so real about how to deal with these things and how to have victory over them and how to, how to turn to you and trust you. It tells us what life will be like living in a fallen world. And yet it assures us that we will never, ever be alone. That you care, that you take note, you know our pains, you know our worries, you know our anxieties, you know our fears. It tells us you know all that and that you have given us the way to handle that. And it's by casting all of our cares upon you, trusting you in the midst of suffering, trusting you with the timetable of the suffering, trusting you with the nature of the suffering, and yet all the while knowing that ultimately we can't lose. Ultimately, you will always raise us up 
You did it for your son, Jesus, and you'll do it for every believer who fixes their trust in you. Lord, thank you for your good promises. Please remind us of these things when we most need them. Remind us this coming week when we start to feel anxious that you said, cast your cares upon the Lord, for I care for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.